You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that totally knows why the caged bird sings. Yeah, no, we totally absolutely know that. You, we're not going to tell you because we want to see if you know. We're, we're just testing you. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. So on this episode, we're going back to poetry, which we really haven't done much. We, we had the unfortunate story of Emily Dickinson and her murder aura. Well, it wasn't a murder aura, just her tragic death aura. And uh, Edgar Allan Poe and his tragic death aura and the poet we're gonna be talking about today also had a bit of a tragic death aura so there might be something to this maybe basically poets don't form attachments with with anyone don't love anyone because they're gonna die horribly we're talking about the poet john dunn took a whole semester's class on this and the professor is very pervy man well john dunn as we're gonna find out is kind of He's he very, knew a lot he's a about the man. He, he knew a lot about the John Benet Ramsey case, and he wanted to discuss that quite a bit in class. It was yeah, very strange. That's really weird. Mm, yeah. But yeah, I know. So we're talking about John Dunn and making the potentially questionable decision to kind of let RJ take the lead on this one because, as he just said, he got a whole semester's full of this gentleman, and I knew basically nothing. I never really had to read any John Donne at all in school. I was familiar with the poem Death Be Not Proud, um, and that was kind of it. And then, as we'll get into, I knew a couple of famous poll quotes that I didn't realize were his, they, that they belong to him, that other people have utilized over time. So here's something wild on this episode of Ono Lit Class. RJ's the one who knows what he's talking about. I always know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, RJ's the one who's done the reading <laughs> and is coming with the prior knowledge, and I... Am not. I mean, I read poems because we're going to talk about poems and stuff, but uh, prior to this, didn't know a thing. I'm a man of class. Yeah? Yep. That's why you picked the horny poem, man? Yep. All right, if you say so. So I'm assuming that people listening probably don't know who John Donne is either, but I imagine they'll at least know like that phrase, the no man is an island. It's a very put in like a fancy font superimposed on like a background of like shooting stars over a lake kind of shit that your aunt posts to Facebook. So let's learn more ab about the dude who wrote those words. John Donne was born January 22nd, 1572 and died March 31st, 1631. So we be talking Big Willie Shakespeare times in London, yo, which was still working through its Guido-esque renaissance. Hey, yo. Wait, wait, why were you bobbing like that was supposed to have a rhythm? Like, were you <laughs> were you planning on doing, like, a Fresh Prince rap, but were too scared to commit? Hey, yo. Hey, yo, I'm having the renaissance here. Oh, a Guido-esque renaissance, Guido if you remember. Why is it a Guido-esque renaissance? Hey, yo, Macbeth, keeping it fresh. Oh, yeah, keeping it so fresh. That's that's what we do best. Um, oh, it's canon in Ono oh, like Quest canon now that... <laughs> 
Boy, boy, Shakespeare's time there in England. It was Guido-esque. No, it was canon that in our crappy retelling of Macbeth in whatever century Scotland, it was Guido-esque. So, little Johnny Boy Jr. was born in merry old London. He was born into a Roman Catholic family during a time that practicing Roman Catholicism was illegal in England. You know, the whole Church of England thing, allowing divorces and stuff because King Henry VIII wanted to have a male heir and Queen Catherine wasn't popping out what King Henry was buying. You know, it had taken hold by then. She wasn't popping out what King Henry was buying? Nope. You, do you know how sentences work? That, that words mean things? We're about to talk about a bunch of poetry where every word is important. Yeah, she was be, be popping stuff out, and he was like, return to sender. <laughs> so, a good way to make your religion popular? Make all the other religions illegal in the area. That's how you do. Little Johnny Boy Jr. was born to John Dunn, which means John Dunn was named after his dad, John Dunn. And so it goes. It was the Shakespeare times. Everybody was named, like, fucking John and William and shit. I feel like we could forgive them this. His mom was Elizabeth Haywood. Daddy Dunn was a warden at the old Ironmongers Company in London, who mainly kept to his Catholic self as not to get unwanted attention brought to his crypto-Cathol lifestyle. I presume working with iron in the late 16th century wasn't the safest or the most desirable of jobs. Thus, I'm sure you're all shocked to learn that Daddy Dunn was done when little Johnny Boy Jr. was a wee lad of four. Rip Daddy Dunn. What happened? There are no notes on exactly what he died from, but I assume he fell into some huge vat of scaldy metal, or inhaled something he shouldn't have inhaled, or tuberculosis, because it seems to always be the Burke. It is frequently the Burke, yes. This brings us up to this week's installment of TV Show Writing with RJ. Wait, what? There are a lot of medical shows on TV. Are we not giving financial advice anymore? House, General Hospital, Scrubs. Okay, Two of those three are no longer on TV. And sex sent me to the ER. That might still be. These shows are always depicting crazy things like not lupus, sudden bounce of amnesia for the 12th time, elephantitis, or having one's penis stuck in a jacuzzi pump. But none of these shows... Such relevant references. <laughs> so topical. <laughs> hey, they're pretty good. Who's What are the kids talking about? Oh yeah, House, something that hasn't been on TV in like, what, eight years? But none of these shows ever cover things that actually kill people like the Burke. <laughs> I mean, lupus kills, definitely kills people. P people frequently die of that. But it's never lupus. We can cure it now. Why not celebrate it? Give us a good ending. Show us how we, as a species, have learned to conquer something. The Burke. I mean, there also might be episodes of House or one of the following that, that deal with tuberculosis? I'm assuming no. Get with it medical show TV writers. People want to see everyday illnesses with everyday normal cures. I don't think they do. I think that's why they watch things like Sex Sent Me to the ER. No longer do we want these outlandish diseases with these crazy cures. We can't relate to that. We cannot suspend our disbelief any longer to believe old Betty has conveniently forgotten the last 25 years of her life, just as we're about to find out the parentage of little Billy Blue Eyes. I say no more. Okay, see now, I've learned from listening to the soapy madams that amnesia is the least outlandish thing that happens on General Hospital by far. <laughs> this week's episode of TV Show Writing with RJ is brought to you by Geritol. Got some general issues with your body? Geritol is your general solution to all those general problems. Geritol, mmm, now that's a zesty meatball. 
Somehow I don't foresee this ha- having the the same legs as financing with RJ. Funny you should say that. Next week on TV show writing with RJ. Oh, Jesus. Talking animals and the reason we can never have enough. Like Snorky, for instance. Yeah. Yep. Something I, you know, look forward to. But for now, back to little Johnny Boy Jr. face. Being one of six children, the fact that daddy died and left mommy behind caused quite the problem. Now, mommy Dunn's side of the family is... Interesting, to say the least. Oh. They were really religious. A number of her family members were martyred due to their staunch Catholicism. Oh, shit. Most famously, her great-uncle was Thomas More. Oh, shit. Even I know that. (laughs) Who was the religious counselor to Henry VIII that was beheaded for not converting to the Church of England when that became a thing. And just generally telling Henry VIII that he was wrong and stupid for doing the whole Church of England thing. In short, Thomas More... And the rest of Mommy Dunn's family should have picked an enemy that was not as beheading happy as Henry VIII. Just a thought. He was fond of removing heads from where they are supposed to be. Many people you think, though, could do that where it's like, Oh, yeah, my uncle so-and-so, yeah, he was martyred. I don't know what your uncle's doing, you know. So, most of little Johnny's childhood was made up of him and his family doing their best to scrape by with the help of those around them. In 1583, at the age of 11, I guess the family wasn't 11. No. When little Johnny Jr. was 11. There you go. The family was able to get Johnny Boy enrolled at Hart Hall. After three years of study, he was admitted to the University of Cambridge, where he studied for another three years before completing his studies. He studied for another three years before completing his studies? Yeah. Good job. Took him three years of studying to complete his studies. If you did the math, that means at 17, John Dunn completed his studies at Cambridge. I hate you. <laughs> However, despite finishing all his coursework successfully, he did not get a degree from Cambridge because he refused to renounce his Catholicism. Hardcore cap all shit right there. Never back down. Never surrender. Never surrender. After completing Cambridge, although not technically graduating from there, he was accepted as a student at the Davies Inn Legal School. That's the best way I could say that word. This sent him on a course to become a good old-fashioned man of the courts and or chancery. Now it was 1593, five years after the defeat of the Spanish Armadillo, and (laughs) Queen Elizabeth passed a statute basically criminalizing those who did not go to the Church of England and enacted legislation to actually punish those who did not go legally through the power of the courts rather than from the crown. In 1593, Johnny Boy's brother Henry was arrested for harboring a Catholic priest and was tortured on the rack until he gave up the priest he was harboring. Oh, jeez. The priest was hanged until he was almost dead before being disemboweled. Ah! Ah, religion. The lovely things people do in the name of it. As for Brother Henry, he was thrown into prison until he died of bubonic plague. According to biographers, it was this episode that led Johnny Jr. to begin to question his Catholicism. Mmm, just uh, having second thoughts about that. Now, things weren't all doom and gloom with Dunn, though. He was able to break out of England for a bit. He traveled across Europe. During his travels, he took part in some military campaigns at Cadiz and the Azores. He got to fight alongside Sir Walter Raleigh against the Spanish. He also took some R&R in Spain as well as in Italy. He spent enough time in both places, enjoying their respective cultures, learning about their forms of government, that by the time he returned to England, he was fluent in both Spanish and Italian. Dope. Additionally, Johnny Boy was known to spend a good bit of his money on literature and women. 
Unlike that fuddy-duddy Joseph Conrad, John Dunn. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta be listening to these in their exact order or this joke doesn't make sense. (laughs) Just Conrad the fuddy-duddy. It doesn't matter what order you listen to it I guess. It just would seem weird that you're bringing up a writer from the 1800s, you know, from 200 years later. (laughs) In our universe? Pretty recent. Unlike that fuddy-duddy Joseph Conrad, John Dunn had a bit of Daddy Dumas in him. Just not literally, unless they were into that kind of thing, which would be completely fine if they were. It would also be confusing, because wouldn't Daddy Dumas have been inspired by John Dunn? 1802, so a little bit later. Yeah, so I would imagine it's more that Daddy Dumas had a little of John Dunn in him. So with the life of traveling, learning, laying some pipe abroad in broads behind him. Ew. Dunn was 25 and set up for a career in diplomacy. As such, he was the chief secretary to the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal, which placed him in Whitehall, which was the most influential social center in England at the time. Just to unpack a few things here. First of all, the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal is the dude who would keep the mold used to create wax seals on official documents for the king and or queen. Oh, that's much less cool than how it sounds. It sounds like some kind of Game of Thrones shit. Nope. The dude's job was to literally keep a mold of the seal and break it out whenever asked. And if that job doesn't sound easy enough, he had helpers, like Dunn, as chief secretaries. So what did Dunn do? He helped the guy whose only job it was to keep the seal mold under lock and key until requested keep a schedule, I guess. And since Dunn was the chief secretary, that leads me to believe there were lesser secretaries below him. Bureaucracy, man. Indeed. Also, the thing about being able to stay at Whitehall, the place was the biggest in Europe at the time. It had over 1,500 rooms in it. It remained the largest palace in Europe until the Palace of Versailles came along with its 2,400 rooms. Yeah, well, that's the French for you. If you were wondering how many secretaries the dude who walked around with the royal seal needed, <laughs> yes, you I must was. <laughs> you, you must be wondering what do you do with 2,400 rooms? Well, I'll tell you. You have rooms to sleep in, rooms to eat in. Wait, wasn't 2,400 rooms Versailles? Yeah, but I'm wondering who gives a shit about 1,500 rooms. I'm thinking the bigger number. I'm assuming. It's all the same, just on a different scale, Meg. You have rooms to sleep in, rooms to eat in, rooms to just change clothes in, rooms to play in, red rooms for when you want to have Christian and Anastasia over for a visit, and rooms to put a fireplace in. In fact, you can have many rooms with many fireplaces in them. We're talking over a thousand fireplaces in the damned palace. This is neither here nor there. You're you're very hung up on the amount of fireplaces that may or may not have been in the palace. Oh no, they're over a thousand. Okay. I'm trying to give scale. The the number of fireplaces in the Palace of Versailles really doesn't have much bearing on the life of a Mr. John Dunn, a a gentleman who was mega horny for both God and the ladies. Well, we're trying to point out here the life this man was leading. He's wandering around a place with 1,500 rooms, like 1,000 fireplaces. He's chilling out in Whitehall. It's pretty dope. His job is to help out the dude whose job it is to hold a fucking wax seal until they need the wax seal. I think we've made the point. I'm putting meat on the bones. (laughs) The importance of all this being... See? I I was leading to a point and I I didn't even know. I highly doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) The importance of all this being that since Dunn got to stay there, he got to rub elbows with all the hoity-toity in England. And those who came to England from abroad. That's a, that, 
was not worth it. The amount of time and fireplaces it took to get there. By all accounts, Johnny Boy was a fine chief secretary to the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal. There was nary a complaint or problem. Even though he was still, you know, Catholic and everything, everyone seemed to look the other way. Don't ask, don't tell. Until Johnny Boy got horny. Johnny Boy (laughs) got very horny. (laughs) Johnny Boy got horny a lot. Specifically, he got very horny for the Lord's Keeper's niece and more. He got horny enough that he decided to marry her in secret. You know, the Church of England likely not to sanction a marriage between a heretic. Heretic? A heretic. A heretic. A heretic. And a nice, lovely lady who probably could never sin in her life. A nice, lovely lady who was 17 to his 29, just saying. Johnny Boy actually found a priest from the Church of England to do the secret marriage. It was not long before the secret marriage was no longer a secret. And this more or less destroyed Dunn's career as he knew it. He was fired from his job and sent to prison along with the priest that carried out the marriage. As well as the rando dude they grabbed off the street that acted as a witness to the marriage. Oh, sucks to be that guy. The prison stint did not last long as, despite everything else, the marriage was found to be valid. I and mean, he was carried out by a dude from the Church of England. And the trio got out of jail. This did not necessarily make things better for the happy couple, however. As part of his release, John was more or less banished to the literal outskirts of society where he scraped by as a small town lawyer and Anne became the assistant to a a pamphleteer who focused on publishing anti-Catholic pamphlets. Mm. When you gotta make a buck, you know? That's a long way from Whitehall. But hey, there was a benefit to all this. It gave John and Anne plenty of space to fuck the living shit out of each other. And fuck they did. And if there's anything true about this marriage, (laughs) fucking is something they did a lot of. Anne gave birth to 12 kids in the 16-year marriage. Now, financially, this was a pretty stupid move. Which brings us to an abbreviated edition of Financing with RJ. (laughs) Dear Baby Makers. Maybe don't do a fucking cheaper by the dozen if you're living on the edge of poverty. Don't plant and grow the seeds to make crotch fruit unless you can afford the fruit that's going to fall from your crotch nine months later. This feels like we're shaming poor people and telling them they're not allowed to have kids. Like, this feels kind of You made it about poor people. I didn't make it about poor people. Well, you said don't have kids unless you can afford them. Twelve kids. Twelve, well, yeah, don't have twelve kids. I said that too. I said don't do it cheaper by the dozen. Yeah, I'm not sure anyone can really afford twelve kids. Except the mega rich. I ain't shitting on no poor people. Or unless you have like one of those TLC TV deals where the show is about the fact that you have just like innumerable children. And remember, if you have to ask how much the crotch fruit is, that means you can't afford it. (laughs) This abbreviated finance with RJ is brought to you by Trojan. Trojan. Use it, you broke asses. A whole pack of these is cheaper than college. He didn't have to worry too long about how much those kids were costing him. Oh, we'll talk about that. Anyway, (laughs) since Johnny Boy and Anne were leading a meager life, it was pretty tough to feed 12 mouths. It also being the 17th century, the child mortality rate was pretty high. This led Dunn to opine at one point when some of the children did die that, hey... Some of them, eight of them died before the age of 10. Hey, (laughs) on the bright side, it was one less mouth to feed. On the bad side, though... They couldn't afford the funeral. And yet he just kept having more of them. He was going through some shit and even contemplated committing Papa Roach. Um, committing bad music band? No, cutting his life into pieces. Oh, as was his last resort? Yeah. 
Cut my life into pieces. This is my last resort. Dunner something. <laughs> this is good. I'm so glad we're treating this very sensitive topic with the amount of nuance and respect it deserves that you would expect from Oh No Lit Class. I'm treating it with as much seriousness as Jonathan Swift. They should have ate them before they died. They would have solved a couple problems. Oh, Jesus. What, what? You saying something's wrong with Jonathan Swift? I... Megan? Well, things did improve a bit for him and his family. It was always in small doses. For example, even though he became a member of Parliament, it was an unpaid position at the time. During this time, Johnny Boy did a lot of writing. You can guess how cheery and sunshiny it was. However, people did like the writing. Even the new king, King James I, you know, the Scottish king that Big Willie arguably wrote Macbeth for, liked Dunn's work, but was all like, yeah, it's good, you know, but that whole Catholic thing. Could, can't, you, could you be a little less Catholic? Can't help you too much, guy. Maybe you should, you know, convert or something. This went on for like another dozen years or so until Johnny Boy did it. Jesus. He converted and took holy orders from the Church of England in 1615 at the age of 43. Almost immediately, his life changed. He was granted the degree from Cambridge he truly earned earlier in life. He became a royal chaplain, basically a member of the royal church and a lecturer of divinity at Lincoln's Inn, one of the big law schools at the time. Within five years, he quickly rose through the ranks of the Church of England and became the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. As you can imagine, this was a pretty posh, well-paying, well-respected job. Johnny D's back on top! And he held the deanship until his death. It's easy to think that Dunn was quickly forgiven to send a message to all those other dirty little Catholics running around England to fall in line, and they too will be able to quickly climb the ranks. However unlikely that was. John died March 31st, 1631 at the age of 59 of stomach cancer. He was buried at St. Paul's Cathedral, and his memorial was purposely done to invoke the image of the resurrection of Jesus to show John Dunn's own resurrection during his own life. Yeah, like, the Church of England peeps went all in on this thing. Wow. Dunn left us with some memorable lines that you might not even know originated with Dunn, such as, For whom the bell tolls. And as Megan mentioned earlier, No man is an island. So with that in mind, let's transition to Dunn and his writing career. Unless Megan had more about his life that you wanted to throw in. Well, A, just out of curiosity, just because d- during this, you know, same time, we, we don't, we're not even 100% sure when the fuck, like, William Shakespeare was born or went to school or something, but we know that John Dunn died specifically of stomach cancer? Yeah. Though, as we talked about in the Shakespeare episode, anything that dealt with the crown, that shit got written down oh, because yeah, that was true. important. That's fair. And so John Dunn was the dean of... St. Paul's Cathedral, kind of a big deal with the church, and church people wrote stuff down. Yes, anything to dealt with the courts, or the church, or the crown. Okay. Um, gotta yeah, be I, I guess I, I could say that his wife, you know, the baby machine, died in childbirth at the age of 33 after 16 years of just being continuously pregnant. So I'm sure that was super great for her because, you know, and, and more, which was her name, you know, because this, this deserves. To be discussed, because it sucks. A um, well, life force was drained from her. Yeah. People are like batteries that way, and mm. making 16 babies. That's a lot of babies. Well, no, not 16 babies. Or 12, 12, babies. 12 babies in 16 years. That's rough. 
So early on in his writing career, shockingly enough, he wrote extensively about England's corrupt legal system, the idiocy of blindly following one's religious leaders, and religious dogma. Hmm. He also took plenty of opportunities to throw shade at those who he felt were lesser writers. And, oh yeah, he wrote about sex. A lot about sex. His poems are just the horniest. And the thing is, he was really, really smart and good at poems. So they're really clever in how they're horny. And then, after the financial strain, overpopulation of his own family, death among his children, and personal illness, did his writing take on a more pious, dour kind of tone. Eventually, once he converted and became part of the Anglican Church, his writings became very religious. And bummer. Thus, we're left with very different versions of John Donne, depending on what time of life it was that we explore. Many consider Donne a master of the metaphysical conceit which means many critics believe he was among the first and best to be able to combine vastly different ideas into one using extended, extended metaphors and imagery. An example of this being from A Valediction, Forbidding Morning. Oh, yeah, no, wait, don't, I have a whole thing with that. Which Megan will read in a bit. Okay. In which he compares two separated lovers to the opposing ends of a compass, never able to get any closer. Dunn was also known for not being one to keep a particular meter in his writing. Rather, he wrote much like he spoke in random, jagged sentences. This pissed off more classical writers like Ben Johnson, who said of the matter, quote, Done for not keeping of accent, deserved hanging. That's intense. But yeah, he, he's been criticized for what has been referred to as his abuse of the metaphor. And um, yeah, that he, he was rebelling against what he saw as the smoothness of Elizabethan poetry. And I mean, you picture like, Shakespeare as a really good example of someone who is all about like a consistent clear rhyming structure that he sticks with through hell or high water and Dunn was just like nope fuck that he he has just like you said like random just jagged uh syntax and weird rhyme schemes that don't make sense and will change and just abrupt openings and endings and Nobody knew quite what to make of it. Now, as mentioned, I took an entire course on John Donne. And one of the poems that stuck with me is The Flea, in which Donne uses a flea to represent an entire relationship. While it's unknown exactly when he wrote it, as he never published a poem, it seems as if it were to come from an earlier time in his life, during the better, sexier years. <laughs> John Donne, the sexy years. I just want to, I just want to throw in... Cause just because I brought up Shakespeare and before we go into like the actual poems themselves, there is, unfortunately, because I did look, because all of these poets and playwrights and dudes like hung out and talked and stole from each other and shit, there is unfortunately no proof that Big Willie and Johnny D ever actually met each other or knew each other or interacted. I mean, maybe they knew of each other, but you know, I guess Johnny D was big up in the, the church, so I suppose not. But there's no proof that they didn't know each other. So if someone wants to write a story about Big Willie Shakespeare, who was, you know, give or take a couple years, depending, about eight years older than Dunn as the, like, established poet man, and then John Dunn as the young upstart breaking all the rules, and their rivals, and maybe they get into, like, a drunk fist fight, because that's how poets did back in the day, but then maybe also they fall in love? Yeah, yeah. It would still be objectively better than anonymous 
AKA Shakespeare is actually the Earl of Oxford and he banged the queen, who's also his mom. Just saying. I mean, I would say probably the time that Shakespeare was ascending, Dunn was still kind of banished. And then by the time he became a thing, Shakespeare died. Yeah, that does add up timeline-wise, because he died about, what, 15 years prior to, to Dunn. Yeah. So, and, and Dunn died at 15 years. But yeah, whatever. I, That's what fan fiction is for, damn go. it. Get on it, fanfic writers. Okay, poem time. John Dunn, the flea. Mark but this flea, and mark in this how little that which thou deniest me is. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee. And in this flea are two bloods mingled be. Thou knowst that this cannot be said, a sin nor shame nor loss of maidenhead. Yet this enjoys before it woo, and pampered swells with one blood made of two. And this, alas, is more than we would do. O stay three lives and one flea spare, where we almost, yea, more than married are. This flea is you and I, and this our marriage bed, and marriage temple is. Though parents grudge, and you were met, and cloistered in these living walls of jet, no use make you apt to kill me, let not that self-murder added be, and sacrilege three sins in killing three. Cruel and sudden hast thou since purple thy nail in blood of innocence? Wherein could this flea be guilty of, except in that drop which it sucked from thee? Yet thou triumphest, and sayest that thou findest not thyself nor me the weaker now. Tis true, then learn how false fears be. Just so honor, when thou yieldest to me, will waste as this flea's death took life from thee. Such a horny poem. So, do you think we need to help our listeners on what's going on here? Or I, I mean, it's it's tough language. I feel like even if you are unfamiliar with the Elizabethanness of the language, which yeah, it's it's difficult. I feel like you could still get a sense of the underlying just severe horniness of it all. But in terms of what is specifically happening, yes, I think it would be useful to give a breakdown. That's so. In short. Don has a crush on some fine female woman lady friend and apparently is trying to get it on with her. And she seems to not be so sure about this. And he goes, well, you see this little flea? It took some blood from me, took some blood from you. We're both flea ridden. It's the olden times. Our, our blood, <laughs> our blood is now mingled in that flea. That flea is still alive. And in fact, what we are going to do it's not even exchange blood. We're doing less than what the flea already did to us. It's not going to be so bad. This flea is a metaphor for our imminent banging. And then she kills the flea after he says, by killing the flea, not only is she killing the poor innocent flea, it's like she's murdering everybody involved. Cold. And that it's much easier for them to just have sex than to do the dirty murder of the flea. And so it's his way of, you know, trying to show and argue there is no dishonor in having sex with him because, hey, their blood's already mixed together. Birds do it. Even little tiny fleas do it. Let's do it. Let's have a sex. Now, I forget the name of one of his other poems that when I learned the flea, we kind of learned it together um, because they kind of fit together. I wish I remembered what the name of it was, where basically he is, again, trying to court a female of some sort. And... She is resistant, apparently, because he's having sex with everybody. Good call, girl. And he goes, 
Well, think of it this way. When I'm having sex with you, not only do you have my attention, like you have my full undivided attention and my full undivided attention for those like two seconds of fun is way better than never having my attention at all. Wow, thinking pretty highly of himself and his wiener, Mr. John Dunn. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else you got to say about the flea? No, except, well, except you left out that she crushes the flea, but then he says, Oh, look, see, you, you killed the flea and neither of us are dead, and that proves that us boning will be a harmless act. Re redoubles those efforts. Don't let the flea die in vain. <laughs> Gross. Now, as mentioned earlier, Dunn is the man who penned the line for whom the bell tolls. The line's written in a work known as Devotions Upon Emergent Occasions. He wrote this later in life, shortly after a relapsing battle with Typhus. He was supposedly on death's door a number of times during the battle. The image of a bell ringing is a common one, as when one dies, a bell is rung to honor them. Now, these devotions are broken down into 23 different meditations. I will read in part, because it's all very long, Meditation 17. Perchance he for whom this bell tolls may be so ill as that he knows not it tolls for him. And perchance I may think myself so much better than I am as that they who are about me and see my state may have caused it to toll for me, and I know not that. The bell doth toll for him that thinks it doth, and though it intermit again, yet from that minute that that occasion wrought upon him. He is united to God. Who casts not up his eye to the sun when it rises, but who takes off his eye from a comet when it breaks out? Who bends not his ear to any bell, which upon any occasion rings? But who can remove from that bell, which is passing a piece of himself out of this world? No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a quad be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if, as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were, any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. That any man's death diminishes me. I, I just, I don't know, I like that. You know, I mean, I, I think, it's probably his most famous thing that he's written, at least the language of it as it's been cannibalized by many people yeah. and taken from it. And I mean, I think we could all understand why. One, it's very poetic. Even as though, poetry tends well, to be. <laughs> it's really not a poem. Well, but it has a it has a rhythm and a meter to it, even though you were having a very hard time with it. <laughs> and But his rhythm and meter was super weird, as we're talking about, and didn't really... Uh, with one interesting exception that we're also going to read, uh, didn't conform to typical poem standards. <laughs> it's true. And, but I do like, you know, the idea behind it, you know, seeing one as part of the bigger sea, yeah. as it were, or the bigger continent. Yeah, that if, if one if one piece goes, we all go. Yeah, and so I believe this was written much later in life once he's renounced his Catholicism and became the Church of England. I don't know what we can read into about that. Mm. But it's a man who at this point in his life has dealt with a lot of death. He felt diminished. Yeah. And now, for another quick whiplash of emotion. You, you didn't you didn't set these up in a way that they would lead into each other emotionally or thematically. You just kind of went with it. Ah, I went with the flea, my favorite, then most famous. And now, let's all end with more sex. Did you read this one beforehand? 
Not this one, not actually. This one. I did read The Flea, and I did read the other one. I did not read this one. So, Elegy 19, To His Mistress Going to Bed. I will read this in its entirety, because really I couldn't figure out a way to edit this one down in a way that makes much sense. Well, all of mine are really short, so. Plus, there's a whole thing going on here, and I don't want us to skip a single step. All right. Come, madam. Come. (laughs) We're off to a good start. (laughs) All rest my powers defy. Until I labor, I in labor lie. The foe oft times having the foe in sight is tired with standing, though he never fight. Off with that girdle, like heaven's own glistering, but a far fairer world encompassing. Unpin that spangled breastplate which you wear that the eyes of busy fools may be stopped there. Unlace yourself, for that harmonious chime tells me from you that now it is bedtime. Off with that happy busk, which I envy, that still can be and still can stand so nigh. Your gown going off, such beautish... What? Beautish. Beauteous. Beauteous. Such beauteous state reveals, as when from flowery mead to the hills shadow steals. Beautish. Off with that wiry cornet, and show the hairy diadem which you doth grow. Whoa! That's filthy! (laughs) Yeah. Do you not? Did you not with that? Oh, he said the cornet. No, he's (laughs) not tired. Yeah. Do I need to re-say the whole thing again? Off with that wiry cornet and show, the hairy diadem which you on you doth grow. Now off with those shoes, and then safely tread, in this love's hollow temple, this soft bed. In such white robes heaven's angels used to be, received by men, thou, angel, bringest with thee a heaven like Muhammad's paradise, and though ill spirits walk in white, we easily know by these angels from an evil sprite, though set our hairs on end, but these are flesh upright. License my roving hands and let them go, before, behind, between, above, below. O my America, my new-found land, my kingdom safeliest, when with one man manned, my mine of precious stones, my empery, how blessed am I in this discovering thee. To enter in these bonds is to be free. Then where my hand is set, my seal shall be. Full nakedness, all joys are due to thee. As souls unbodied, bodies unclothed must be. To taste whole joys, gems which you women use, are like Atlanta's balls, cast in men's views. That when a fool's eye lighteth on a gem, his earthly soul may covet theirs, not them. Like pictures, or like books, gay coverings made, for laymen, are all women thus arrayed. Themselves are mystic books, which only we, whom their imputed grace will dignify, must see revealed. Then since that I may know as liberally as to a midwife show, thyself cast all, yea, this white linen hence, there is no pendants due to innocence. To teach thee, I am naked first. Why then, what needest thou have more covering than a man? The end.
It's a long poem. Yep. It's a long, filthy, filthy poem. <laughs> Gotta undress the woman and then drop there at the end. Hey, I've been naked the whole time. <laughs> BT Dubs <laughs> also nude. I mean, that poem is just essentially like, girl, where are you going? Get back on here. Take them clothes off. The, the part, I don't know if I'll keep it in here, but the part where I freaked out at is... uh where he's making it sound like he's saying, you know, take take your hat off, let me see your hair, girl, except he's talking about the downstairs hair. Yep. <laughs> and I mean, like, so this is the thing, like, this is a porn, this is a porn poem. Yep. And the skill is in the fact that he's this metaphysical thing that we talked about uh, earlier, that he's so good at disguising things as other things and, and doing comparisons and, and making unlike things stand in for the porn, which is why it's impressive. Like, that is the horniest poem, but it's it's very cleverly written. It's like, hey, baby, let my hands go over you like you're America and I'm the pilgrims. Yeah, that was something, because oh, I've heard oh, that. Oh. Stop. I've heard that line out of context. What is it? It's, oh, my America, what, that. There, oh it. my America! Oh my America! My newfound yeah. land. Yeah, so I've heard, I've heard, oh my America! My newfound land before in in something divorced of context. In yeah, without license. 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 <laughs> it's not a hard word. <laughs> license my roving hands. I let them go before, behind, between, above, below. Yeah, that. Uh, let me let me touch you all over all the places, America. And that's the thing that you know. Uh, I think stops people like when we talk about Shakespeare and everyone's like oh I'm so disinterested in Shakespeare Shakespeare's you know super hard and you know he's taught in school so he must be boring when all he you know he mostly just wrote about like murder and fucking but it's just in this language that we've come to associate with like stuffy buttoned up old timiness and so here you have this poem that is written in that same kind of stuffy buttoned up old timey language but it's just sexy as hell. And so it's it's kind of, it's worth it, I think, in a way to go back and take a look at this stuff because that's entertaining. It's pervy, but it's very entertaining. Kind of like Atlanta's balls. <laughs> but then you do run into difficulties like that where I don't know what that is. I would have to look that up and to understand what the hell he's talking about. I believe it's like the crown jewels. The crown, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming he means like the Greek goddess... Atlanta. What are Atlanta's balls? Let's learn. Let's learn. What are Atlanta's balls? We don't know what to picture when he brings that up. Uh, the, the balls were gold apples used by her suitor, Hippomenes, to distract her into losing a race for hand. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because yeah, that was her whole thing. Was it was it was a Greek myth that she would only marry dudes who could outrun her, and no one could outrun her because she was like baller as fuck. So this dude's Hippomenes, his whole strat was uh, he had golden these golden apples. Someone gave them to him. Like he wasn't smart enough to do this shit on his own. I don't know if it was like Zeus or Aphrodite or some god who was always meddling in this kind of shit. While he was racing, he'd hurl a golden apple and she'd get distracted, like, whoa, look, a golden apple. So he won the race. So that's what he's talking about. You're distracting me with your big old beautiful golden apples. Well no, 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 no. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. Gems which you women use are like Atlanta's balls, cast in men's views. That when a fool's eye lighteth on a gem, his earthly soul may covet theirs, not them. That he's saying, oh, all these fucking dingbats, they're looking at the pretty shit you're wearing. I'm a man of taste. I want that body. Ah, I know what's underneath. I, I know what's underneath. <laughs> My roving hands, if given license, will explore like America. 
<laughs> that newfound land. He wants you to take off that wiry coronet. Oh, jeez. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely dirty and amazing. I love it. He goes for the real gold. <laughs> I'm about to bring down the, the room a bit with the ones you gave me. <laughs> These are not nearly as horny. <laughs> Two of them are a little horny. One's very much not. So the, the first one is called Death Be Not Proud. It's called Holy Sonnet 10. Fine. Holy Sonnet 10, Death Be Not Proud. It's one of his most simple poems in terms of rhyme scheme. And, well, I guess I'll read it before I give explanation. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow die not, poor death. Nor yet canst thou kill me from rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be. Much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow. And soonest our best men with thee do go rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. And then imagine him just like snapping in a Z formation. Uh, so this poem's like a big takedown of death. Dunn thinks that death's candy ass. And you know, death, you think you're such hot shit? Well, no, you're not. Historians have speculated that he wrote this while struggling with the typhoid that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, you gave this a much uh, poppier reading than I would have uh, in my head. Yeah. That this is much more like, death, what are you going to do for me? You're going to take me away from this goddamn place. Ah, oh, see. I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> it's way worse down here. Ah, okay. So you're, you're like, there's nothing death can do that life hasn't already done to exactly. me. Exactly. There is kind of that. There, the, he was struggling with the, the typhoid and it may have been kind of like a whistling in the dark, trying to like reassure himself that death really isn't as scary as all that. And then also he says that death is restful and, you know, kind of chill and that we are one short sleep past, we wake eternally and death shall be no more, that we're going to go to heaven. And, you know, as a reverend, he's qualified to say that heaven is super rad. So actually, you're doing everyone a favor, Death. So there. But no, most of this is kind of like a takedown on Death. I mean, like I said, mine was a little little snappier than I guess you would think about it. But he says like, oh, you know, Death, you think you're such hot shit. You don't even get to make your own decisions. You're dependent on fate and chance and reliant on like poison and war. And this stuff needs to happen for you to get what you want. So you're, you're not even in control of things here. And he also kind of says that Death isn't good in bed the, the metaphors are getting kind of weird and convoluted there but you know he's saying like death's got kind of like a, a small wiener maybe i suppose because you can read this as a retort to, it's a it's meant to be a retort to death being like all braggy about how strong and scary it is that's why he's saying death be not proud like take it down a notch son and so you could sort of extrapolate that as someone bragging about being like great in bed because we have this double meaning of die as like an orgasm because orgasms were referred to as the little death le petit mot as the uh, french called it and as we have clearly uh, shown here dunn knows about sex euphemisms so 
it is very much on purpose. So when he, he says, you know, oh, and poppier charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke, why swellest thou then? Saying that charms can make people's sleep uh, just as good or even better than death's stroke. Do you get it? Yeah, yeah, death's got nothing to swell about. Take that, existential dread of the dark nothingness we all must meet at the end of life. Death's peen don't work good. Well, see, you, you're focusing specifically on its death's peen's not working. I think you could read the whole poem as being about ED. And once you get ED, you can actually focus on other things in life. Other than, <laughs> like, every single woman that, like, wanders across your vision. And I think that could be part of it, too. Because where do all our best men go? They get old and they get soft dicks. Yeah, that's true. And why do they get soft? It's fate, it's chance, it's kings and desperate men. It could be poison, it could be war, it could be sickness. But it's okay, we've got plants and charms to deal with that. We can get it back up. <laughs> well, no, that that you get it when you sleep, right? You still get a, uh, what do you call it? Oh, like a, like night, night boners? Yeah. I prefer he's, the idea that he's literally just pointing at the Grim Reaper and being like... Your dick don't work. Yeah, you ain't shit, son. Your dick don't even work. Fair enough. Uh, we're gonna need that levity because holy shit, this next poem is a bummer. <laughs> this, is, this is a poem that is in no way horny and was definitely from the later, more penitent years. It is a nocturnal upon St. Lucy's Day being the shortest day, aka I'm old and sad and everyone keeps dying, aka for once a poem that is in no way about boners. Probably. Tis the year's midnight. And it is the days, Lucy's, who scarce seven hours herself unmasks. The sun is spent, and now his flasks and forth light squibs, no constant rays. The world's whole sap is sunk. The general balm the hydroptic earth hath drunk. Whither, as to the bed's feet, life is shrunk, dead and interred. Yet all these seem to laugh, compared with me, who am their epitaph. Study me, then. You who shall lovers be, at the next world, that is, at the next spring, for I am every dead thing, in whom love wrought new alchemy. For his art did express a quintessence, even from nothingness, from dull privations and lean emptiness, he ruined me, and I am re-begot of absence, darkness, death, things which are not. All others from all things draw all that's good, Life, soul, form, spirit, whence they being have, I, by love's limbic, am the grave of all that's nothing. Oft a flood have we two wept, and so drowned the whole world us two. Oft did we grow to be two chaoses when we did show care to aught else, and often absences withdrew our souls and made us carcasses. But I am by her death, which word wrongs her, of the first nothing the elixir grown. Were I a man, that I were one, I needs must know. I should prefer if I were any beast. Some ends, some means, yea, plants, yea, stones, detest and love. All, all, some properties invest. If I an ordinary nothing were, as shadow, a light and body must be there. But I am none, nor will my sun renew. You lovers, for whose sake the lesser son at this time to the goat is run, to fetch new lust and give it you. Enjoy your summer all, since she enjoys her long night's festival. Let me prepare towards her, and let me call this hour her vigil and her eve, 
since this both the years and days deep midnight is. This is a very bitter poem. He can't get it up anymore. To continue our conversation <laughs> with the last poem, yeah. he has ED. Do you think this is, in fact, a hidden boner poem? A oh, I think they all are. <laughs> I mean, I think that needs to be the starting point with basically all of John Donne's poems. <laughs> they are just all boner-based. Yes. I mean, I, this one's explicitly about a specific woman who, the depictions of her, it's pretty hot. They aren't even sure, though. They, they say it, may, it might be for the, the Countess Lucy, uh, who was a patron of his, but it also might be for his wife, depending on when he wrote it, because they're not sure when he wrote it. They say that it, they're not 100% sure who it's in mourning for. St. Lucy. It's her day. <laughs> why pick that day? Uh, I'll tell you why. St. Lucy's Day, like the Feast of St. Lucy is an actual day, yes. and prior to uh, the sort of reshuffling of the calendar, St. Lucy's Day in the winter solstice was on the same day, so it was literally the shortest, yes. darkest day of the year. Yes. <laughs> well, that you're saying, why well, pick St. Lucy's Day? Because it was the most bummer of days. So yeah, this one gets very weird and uh, self-deprecating, and like, ostensibly it's supposed to be about, you know, he's being in mourning for someone beloved, but it really seems more about done and just how unbelievably wildly sad and empty he is than anyone in particular that he's mourning he's just like prostrating himself here or he says whither as to the bed's feet life is shrunk dead and interred yet all these seem to laugh compared with me who am their epitaph so he's saying that dead people are having a gay old time in comparison to me and that he's death's epitaph and like what happened to the dude who was telling death to like suck it a minute ago so the other one was written later in life oh. when he was fighting with typhoid as you talked about right yeah. this was written within a year of his wife dying well, that's why I said that they don't know who if it was for the countess woman who died or his wife who died. There were a lot yeah. of dead people, so it could you know it was a rough time in his life. So you know, at some point he says with the plants and the rocks and the beasts, is he saying even plants and rocks and things have more feelings than I do? I'm nothing. I'm empty and I'm hollow. And it kind of sounds like early two thousands emo music. We even have that line about like young lovers, where he's just like, "Young lovers look upon my gross, sad old madness and despair." Bear. Everything you love is going to die. Peace. And there's no real upturn either. Like he says, you know, oh, okay, you young lovers, have fun banging like crazy while you can. That's uh, the line about for whose sake the lesser son at this time to the goat is run. So the goat, the goat's quite possibly Pan, you know, like the horny little Greek god of like lust and into nature and shit I mean he says to fetch new lust so he's like enjoy your summer cause I'm in my winter and it sucks and you're gonna be here someday and everyone you love is gonna be dead and you're not gonna feel things inside and all you have to look forward to is being dead woof so I didn't want to end it on a bummer there so I wanted to finish things out with the poem that you mentioned way way back a valediction forbidding mourning aka i hate to see you leave but i love to watch you go aka this mathematical instrument is a metaphor for how our love will always bring us back together and also for my penis probably no not mathematical instrument yeah no you're thinking of the wrong compass i think you're thinking of the wrong compass. no you're talking about this compass i don't think so I know it is because I looked it up. I think whatever you looked up, they well, because you can draw. No, because you could draw like charts and stuff with these. Talk about one metal end is firmly planted; the other one can go in a circle. Uh, like guess. people 
use that for maps and stuff too he's talking uh, about a metal yes. like math instrument uh. compass D- read a fucking book <laughs> all right the valediction forbidding morning as virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go whilst some of their sad friends do say the breath goes now and some say no so let us melt and make no noise no tear floods nor sigh tempest smooth twere profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. Moving of the earth brings harms and fears, men reckon what it did and meant, but trepidation of the spheres, though greater far, is innocent. Dull sublunary lovers love, whose soulless sense cannot admit absence, because it doth remove those things which elemented it. But we, by a love so much refined that ourselves know not what it is, Interassured of the mind, care less eyes, lips, and hands to miss. Are two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go endure not yet a breach, but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness beat. If they be two, they are two, so as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth if the other do. And though it in the center sit, Yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it, and grows erect as that comes home. Such wilt thou be to me who must, like the other foot, obliquely run. Thy firmness makes my circle just, and makes me end where I begun. Not a fucking directional compass. (laughs) Idiot. Um... I never read it. <laughs> wow. So you were just you were just you were trying to fucking mansplain me shit you didn't read. This is staying in. So yeah, it's interesting to kind of put this side by side with St. Lucy, which is just sort of violently pessimistic. While this one is much more stiff upper lip. It's like, yeah, we're gonna we'll be apart, but it ain't no thing. Our love is strong as hell, girl. We're going to be just fine. And before you know it, we'll be back together and banging nigh constantly. You know, he says, let our let our parting be as soft and easy and just like totally not a big thing as an old man dying, which is not terribly romantic. That metaphor got away from him a little bit. You've got these very horny lines afterwards, like let us melt and make no noise, but they're immediately after the dead old man thing. So that kind of puts a damper on it. Also, like, if you want proof of Dunn's skill as a poet, look no further than those last two stanzas. Like, who the hell looks at a compass? Again, the math kind, the thing with the two little metal thingies on it that you can use to draw, like, a perfect circle and shit. And is just like, mm, yes, this reminds me of the inevitable parting but eventual return of two lovers. Mega horny John Dunn, that's who. You could draw boobies with them. Perfectly <laughs> round boobies. The and nipples he, in the middle. And nice he, and ma- he makes it work, though. It's a good metaphor. A fixed point for a wandering soul to return to. A circle of love that being physically apart can't break. And also he says erect in firmness, so odds are he's probably also talking about his peen. But even even then, I just, I love that. Such wilt thou be to me who must, like the other foot obliquely run. Thy firmness makes my circle just and makes me end where I begun. Like it all comes full circle and I really like that, even though it does sound kind of dirty. This is my favorite one out of all of the ones that I read, like not even just the ones that I I did, but uh, RG's also. And it's also his most conventional in terms of like the rhyme scheme and things like that. And that tells you all you need to know about me and my relationship with poetry. Namely that I'm a dumb baby and I need a simple, easy rhyme scheme with a sappy romantic premise and some gentle references to metaphysical peens. 
Yeah, he never and did write about protractors. No. Big D's. Sexy, sexy protractors. The big old D. <laughs> Guess it wrote itself. Yeah. RJ. Yep. The works of John Dunn. Horny reverend man. Good or bad? Three dicks up. Why three? That's as many as I got. I can't give another. I feel like I would have noticed that. You only get one. I don't show you the others. Oh? They're special? Not for you. You haven't earned them yet. This is, this, this is weird. <laughs> I don't want to talk about this anymore. John Dunn. Very good. Thumbs up. Dicks up. This was your pick, so I don't know if you want to go more into detail than I really wanted to pick this horny poet. Nope. Hey, Meg. Yeah, RJ? John Dunn. Johnny Boy. Johnny on the spot. Johnny D. Your thoughts? So like I said, I didn't really know him before this, and I feel that my life is fuller now with Mr. John Dunn in it, I suppose. He did some cool stuff. With some very sexy poems. Uh, they're fun to read. They're fun to kind of figure out. He also wrote some very depressing poems, but even then, they're they're still very cleverly written. He had kind of a bummer life, and it really sucked to be his wife. But... Way to rhyme. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> but oh, when you, when you think of that peen, you gotta wonder the things it's seen. <laughs> and now our analysis is passed. It's time to end this Ding Dong podcast. So, if you want to hear more of the things that we do, if you like us, you could write us a sexy poem. It'd be sort of weird, but we're not going to tell you not to do it. You know, you, you express yourself in whatever way you feel. We'd appreciate it if you expressed it by subscribing to us on iTunes, leaving us ratings and reviews. The only thing better than writing us a sexy, sexy poem would be making a sexy, sexy pledge on our Patreon at patreon.com slash onolitclass where you can vote on what we're going to cover in the next episode, get some dope exclusive merch like stickers and posters and t-shirts, and just have a general good good time, good things. Speaking of Patreon, I want to give a special shout out to our awesome patrons who are like the greatest and most incredible people in the world, obviously. That's why you should pledge, so you can be great and incredible. But enough about you, I want to thank Alexander McCarrick. I hope I pronounced your name right. Alexander, I'm really, really sorry if I didn't. Please let me know. Same goes for Ariel T and Melina Ziaja. Um, Melina played Quiplash with a bunch of us one time, and that was very cool. So I really hope that I did not mispronounce her last name. Along with Rob Christofferson, otherwise known as uh, At Your UFO Guy and the host of Our Strange Skies podcast. Chris Osborne, host of Play Comics uh, podcast. That's At Play Comics cast. And just the the show, Not, not Alone podcast <laughs> at not alone pod which th- those three are just very good shows and you should absolutely listen to them yeah no just thanks guys for contributing to our show it's really freaking cool of you and we love you and it's awesome and thank you we're on the branch brothers network uh you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash ono lit class join the ono lit class group make a bunch of book puns and memes because that's all we do on there we're on Twitter at Ono Lit Class Pod. We are everywhere. We're in between the sheets of your bed on a warm summer evening. Uh, we're also at onolitclass.com. This week's Pod Pals are some very longtime friends of the show. 
Matt and Phil from Semi-Intellectual Musings. They're currently running a special miniseries that will, at the time of this recording, have like just started. I think they, they just did like an episode zero called Chronicity. And to look at sort of creativity and creators who deal with like chronic pain and chronic illness. Matt and Phil are great dudes and they're coming at it from the position of both uh, anthropologists and social scientists and also Matt specifically as someone who suffers from like chronic pain and chronic illness and they interviewed a ton of podcasters and different people about it. I got to be a part of it too, which I'm just feel very privileged about because it's just I'm really excited it's gonna be so good and I really encourage you guys to check it out chronicity a state of prolonged duration recurrent habitual chronic a new mini-series on chronic pain and illness by your friends Matt and Phil from semi-intellectual musings we go beyond medical diagnosis to explore the often forgotten political social and personal sides you'll hear stories from extraordinary people overcoming extraordinary challenges authors entrepreneurs volunteers coaches and caregivers they are so much more than their diagnoses yet each have found ways to persevere you'll also hear some familiar voices from the indie podcast community showing that art creativity and passion are possible while living in chronicity these stories and more starting april 1st at thesim.podbean.com our next episode will be on april 26th until then i'm megan i'm rj i won't forget about the snorky content i promised you all be ready snorky <laughs> is coming megan we need to do a marine base <laughs> book next <laughs> this is not a promise this is not a verbal contract snarky talk we love you bye i think i need to read that one again yeah you want to do another read on that one <laughs> i don't think you're capable of doing another all right. one all right good copy i didn't remember that joke in fact i really don't remember any of my script this podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit braintrustbros.com.